This is Common Threads, an interfaith dialogue. I'm Fred Stella, President of the Interfaith Dialogue Association. Welcome to another edition of Common Threads. Longtime IDA folks will recognize the name Lillian Siegel. Dr. Siegel was a co-founder of IDA and served as president for a number of years. She was also responsible for negotiating with Grand Valley State University in creating the show you're listening to right now, Common Threads. She's now living outside Philadelphia, and recently told us that we really needed to interview Rabbi Arthur Waskow, who founded and runs the Shalom Center in Philadelphia. Well, Lillian has always had a good eye for guests, and this gentleman is no exception. I can think of no one better to help us understand the new movements within Judaism than Rabbi Waskow. And let me tell you a little bit about uh, the good rabbi. He has a very impressive... uh, Uh, curriculum vitae. Uh, He was born in Baltimore in 1933. He took a bachelor's degree from the Johns Hopkins University and a doctorate in U.S. history from the University of Wisconsin in 63. He has worked as a legislative assistant for a member of the U.S. House of Representatives from 1961 to 1963. Uh, He was a senior fellow at the Peace Research Institute In 61, he was a fellow of the Colloquium on Conflict Resolution and Disarmament held by the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. He was among the founders of the Institute for Policy Studies, a pioneering center for independent analysis of governmental policy and social change. Through the 1960s, Arthur Weskow was uh, active in writing, speaking, electoral politics, and nonviolent action against the Vietnam War. And in 1964, he worked closely with the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party at the Democratic National Convention in Atlantic City. In 1965, he spoke at the first anti-war teach-in at the University of Michigan and at many thereafter. Waskow became a writer and teacher of Jewish history and theology. He has worked since 1969 for peace between the Israeli and Palestinian peoples and was among those invited by the White House to take part in the signing of the Declaration of Principles by Prime Minister Rabin and Chairman Arafat in 1993. Through 2001, he worked closely with Rabbis for Human Rights in Israel to create the successful Olive Trees for Peace campaign. In 1995, he was ordained a rabbi by an assembly made up of one rabbi whose rabbinic lineage was Hasidic, one conservative rabbi, one reform rabbi, and a feminist theologian. So with a very impressive life such as this, we are always happy to have folks like this on Common Threads. So uh, welcome to our program, Rabbi Weskow. Thank you, and shalom. Shalom, shalom. My first question in reading, as I mentioned, this very impressive, and this is this is uh, what maybe a third of of uh, your resume. I was resume. worried that you were going to go on with <laughs> day by day history of my life. <laughs> no, we didn't interview any of your relatives for this. Don't worry. Uh, but um, in, in reading this, uh, it, it it hits you that right at the end that uh, you've only been a rabbi now for uh, for ten, 10 years. years. 10 years, just about now. 
what what happened? What epiphany in your life might have happened that decided at this somewhat later age that you wanted to join the ranks of the clergy? Uh huh. Well, the real epiphany came a good bit earlier, and for many years I didn't think it was necessarily drawing me to become a rabbi, but it did draw me deeper and deeper into uh, into Jewish life and into uh, study and action rooted in Jewish uh, uh, wisdom. The real epiphany, um, or at least uh, one of them, came in the spring of 1968. I had been deeply involved in both civil rights and anti-Vietnam War work. Uh, I had briefly, very briefly, met Dr. Martin Luther King. Um, And then, of course, on April 4th, 1968, Dr. King was killed. On April 5th, the next day, uh, the city I was in, Washington, where I lived in the heart of the city, erupted, or the black community of Washington erupted, as happened in about 150 other cities across the country. By nightfall, President Johnson had ordered the U.S. Army to occupy the city of Washington, and it really was an occupation. Uh, The uh, elementary school uh, in my neighborhood was taken over as a bivouac center for the uh, Army. The Army uh, patrolled a number of the major streets of Washington. There was a curfew imposed, which in theory applied to everybody, but in fact the police ignored uh, whites who were on the streets, but jailed more than 10,000 black people for simply being on the streets during the curfew. Um, Since those of us who were white who had been involved in support for the civil rights movement and had been involved in the anti-war movement could be on the streets, we used that time and that essentially privilege, uh, to get medical supplies, food, doctors, lawyers from the white neighborhoods and suburbs into the city to the black communities, which otherwise would have been totally cut off. And I was involved in doing that for the 10 days after the curfew was imposed. But, or and, (laughs) on the On April 14th, 10 days after Dr. King was killed, came the first night of Passover. And the only piece of serious Jewish life that I'd been involved in uh, as a grown-up had been the Passover Seders, the only piece. And I walked home to get ready for the Passover Seder, past detachments of the United States Army occupying my neighborhood and the city. And with a jeep with a machine gun pointed at the block I lived on, and somewhere deep in my in my guts, not really from my head, began to echo and re-echo the sense that this was Pharaoh's army. I was going home to celebrate liberation from Pharaoh, and here was Pharaoh's army on the streets of Washington. So for the first time in my life, the Seder, which had been a serious moment before that, but didn't have anything to do with the rest of my life, um, suddenly, like a volcano, erupted into incredible energy and passion because the Seder was in the streets, and the streets were in the Seder. And a line that's in the traditional uh, uh, teaching for Passover, in the Seder, that says, in every generation... Every human being, doesn't even say every Jew, every human being must look upon himself, herself, as if we ourselves are going forth 
from slavery to freedom, not our great, 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 great grandparents only. And for the first time, that line, which I had read before, came totally alive. And I was stunned at how passionate the energy was from this piece of Jewish life that I had cared about but never been really impassioned about. So I paid attention to that volcano inside me. Um, 1968 was a year in which not only America as a whole went through volcanoes, but a lot of individuals did as well. And I ended up writing a freedom seder, a new uh, Haggadah, a new telling of the story of the liberation of the Israelites from slavery, which wove together with that story the liberation of the black American community, uh, beginning with slave revolts in the 1830s and 40s, and the liberation of other peoples as well. I think, as near as I can tell, the first Haggadah ever that wove the liberations of several different peoples with the liberation of the Jewish people. So that was the that was the really turning point of my life. I spent that was 68, 69, I spent years and years, decades really in pursuing that writing um, undertaking a role of sort of Jewish scholar, activist, teacher, uh, energizer, um, which ultimately drew me to begin to feel myself in the lineage of the rabbis in a changed way. That's why I asked a feminist uh, theologian who wasn't the rabbi to be part of the committee that oversaw my studies for five years, uh, beginning in 1990 and concluding, in, or not concluding really, sort of uh, reaching a, a, a point of readiness in 1995 to uh, uh, to say that I had indeed learned and done enough to uh, that they were willing to call me a rabbi. <clears throat> the feminist theologian, Judith Plasco, said to me, you know, Arthur feels really strange for me, who's not a rabbi, to help ordain a rabbi. And I said, look, the whole point is that I want to join not the rabbinate as it has been, but a transformed version of it. And you're understanding of not only Judaism but of the world, your feminist understanding is part of the transformation I want to join in. So that's why uh, that's why at that point, finally, uh, in 1995, uh, I did become a rabbi. And this assembly, again, made up of a, a reform rabbi, a conservative rabbi, and the way it's phrased in your biography, uh, uh, a rabbi who began in Hasidic life, in uh, uh, Lubavitcher Hasidic life, but who, as he says, graduated from Lubavitch. So, but he had, he deeply, deeply in his, his soul, uh, uh, is deeply uh, a, a Hasid who has become a renewal Hasid, uh, a neo-Hasid, a Hasid who does understand feminism and who has learned from the mystical traditions of <coughs> Islam and Christianity and other traditions, as well as from the mystical tradition of Judaism. And this, being ordained by such a diverse assembly, is this unique? Well, it's unusual. I'm not 
absolutely sure it's unique, but it's pretty unusual. On the other hand, the whole notion of being ordained by a committee of rabbis rather than by a sort of academic seminary, that goes back forever and ever and ever. I mean, the seminaries are a very recent invention if you take Jewish history into account. Uh, but uh, the notion that uh, a committee of rabbis would ordain essentially an apprentice, I mean, it's like what used to be apprenticeships in law and in medicine. Uh, it's a similar kind of thing. And in the Orthodox community, there's a lot of it. Uh, it was in the 90s it was a new thing in the non-orthodox community if you're just joining us you're listening to common threads here on wgvu i'm fred stella and our guest today is rabbi arthur waskow he is from the shalom center in philadelphia pennsylvania uh tell us a little bit about your your vision for this this new movement of Judaism that you see bubbling under right now? Right. Well, first of all, like the committee that ordained me, I absolutely see it as uh, beyond the formal structured denominations. Uh, that it's a, uh, an ongoing movement in the sense that it's people in motion, not rigidified into a, into a, a, a bureaucratic structure. Um, secondly, I see it as responding to a new situation in the world uh, in the same way in which Jews responded to a new situation in the world 2,000 years ago when the Roman Empire uh, sort of shattered biblical Judaism. There had been a pattern of Jewish life biblical Judaism. The Roman conquest, not only military conquest, though it certainly included that, but economic and philosophical and scientific and political, uh, shattered biblical ways of living. Out of that moment came two new uh, spiritual and religious traditions, rabbinic Christ, uh, Judaism and Christianity. And in fact, several centuries later, uh, Islam as well. That crisis really forced people to choose, <clears throat> do we try to hang on to the past? Do we give up entirely on our religious tradition? Or do we reframe it, learning from some of what Rome and Hellenistic civilization brings us, but rejecting what is poisonous in what Rome and Hellenistic civilization brought? And both the rabbis and what became Christianity uh, tried to draw on both some elements of Hellenistic civilization and the biblical tradition and created something new. I think we're in the same place today, that modernity uh, has shattered the traditional forms of Judaism, of Christianity, of Buddhism, of Islam, of all the great religious traditions. And it is forcing all of us to re-examine what is the deepest authentic truth of our own traditions and what new has come to us, what new that God has brought to us in modernity should we be uh, learning from and incorporating in our own traditions. For example, I would say the full equality of women and men 
which certainly didn't come from all, any of the old traditions, but did come to us from modernity, that the full equality of women and men is a sacred expression of God's evolving will. Uh, when I say God's evolving will, sometimes people really blink at me. What do you mean God is evolving? Yes. At the burning bush, when Moses hears God's voice, and, asks, and after God says, go back and lead the liberation from Pharaoh, Moses says, well, who should I say sent me? And first God says, well, come on. I'm the God of your fathers. You know that. And Moses seems to say, look, if I go back and say the God of our fathers sent me, they're likely to say to me, listen, the God of our fathers hasn't lifted a finger during all these centuries of slavery. That's not going to help. We don't trust uh, that anything new can happen. So God responds, okay, my name is I will be who I will be. The King James Bible wrongly translated the future tense in Hebrew, Ehyeh, Asher Ehyeh, clearly future tense, wrongly translated, I am who I am. But it's absolutely clear it's a future tense. This is the God who is always becoming. Well, we are now awakening to another becoming, you might say, of God, and therefore another becoming of ourselves. And a new aspect of Judaism, of Christianity, of Islam, of Buddhism, of all the great traditions, I think is, is emerging under that pressure. There's something else that's happening, which is that under the crisis of facing modernity, some people in each of those traditions have said, oh, this is terrifying. Let's go back. Let's uh, put all the genies back in the bottle. The genie of women, uh, let's put them back in the place they used to have three centuries ago, or even the genie of the other traditions. We used to think they were wrong, just wrong. Ours was the only one that was right. One thing we've learned from modernity is to take serious respect for other traditions. Well, uh, some people say, let's go back to when we understood they were all wrong except our own. And let's go back to when we thought we didn't have to worry about the healing of the earth and the protection of the earth. Let's go back. So you get in Christianity, Judaism, Islam, especially those three so far, you get some reaction into the past, an attempt to restore the past. Uh, and you also get an attempt to renew the past, which is really different from restoring it. Renewing it says we take what is rich and wise and valuable in our own pasts and we integrate into that new sacred wisdom that modernity has brought us. And yes, we will come out in a new place, but that's the God who is always becoming. I will be who I will be. That's where that God who is becoming is going to take us. In communication with you is setting up this interview, I mentioned uh, that we might want to talk about Reconstructionism in Judaism. You said you don't like to be pigeonholed as a Reconstructionist. A am I correct in thinking then that you flow very, very easily and smoothly amongst all of the various movements in Judaism? Well, I would say not so easily and smoothly with Orthodoxy, because there the full equality of women and men is really not Mm, at least yet, understood as 
God's will for the next uh, the next period, the next era of Jewish life. Uh, but even from Orthodoxy, as I mentioned, we have learned from Hasidism a lot. Uh, what we have learned is the passionate, direct connection with God. We have learned <coughs> some of the teachings of Kabbalah, the Jewish mystical tradition. Um, and from Orthodoxy in general, we are trying to learn how to shape a community that really cares for all its members. One of the things that is true about Orthodox communities is they tend to really care when people get sick, when they lose their jobs, uh, when people die, etc. It's harder to find in non-Orthodox communities, they're harder to find that sense of really strong community. So that's one thing we're trying to learn from the Orthodox community. But in terms of prayer, in terms of the way we learn Torah, in terms of the way we learn to uh, act in the world, to heal the world, what we call tikkun olam, the healing of the universe, uh, that we find it easier usually to work with Reform, Conservative, and Reconstructionist Jews. Define the Reconstructive Movement. Well, one of the elements that I'm suggesting is true of what we in Renewal believe it was certainly taught by the founder of Reconstructionism, that is Rabbi Mordechai uh, Kaplan. And that was that in every generation the Jewish people is both um, permitted and obligated to re-examine and reshape what Judaism is. Uh, Kaplan essentially said, look, it is not enough to teach the tradition. We have to be willing to reconstruct the tradition. That's why it was called Reconstructionism. We have to be prepared to reconstruct it. We can draw on it, we can learn from it, uh, but we have to understand that we are living in a different world, and every generation from now on may be living in a different world and have to reconstruct it in different ways. Uh, he understood it in the, you might say, first period of the what looked like totally successful modernity. It was so uh, wonderful in bringing new healing, new food, new freedom to people, and so on, that he didn't pay very much attention to deep problems in modernity. He didn't pay very much attention beyond rationality to what religion was involved in. And so he focused on God, as he said, was the power that draws human beings toward redemption. But for him and for his followers, that was mostly the power inside the human mind. Um, the notion that there was a God beyond human uh, uh, mentality, uh, that God might include all living beings, God might be a reality out there as well as a mindset in here, um, that was not the focus of Reconstructionism. Um, it's changed as one of its... Uh, Teachers, uh, Rabbi Arthur Green, who didn't start out as a Reconstructionist, but served as the president of the Reconstructionist Rabbinical College for a number of years, said when he was challenged by, you know, classical Kaplanian Reconstructionists when he began encouraging change, 
uh, Kaplan had said, Judaism is an evolving religious civilization. And Green said, look, Reconstructionism is also an evolving religious civilization, underlying evolving, um, and therefore must change as we understand the world more fully. So Reconstructionism has begun to change. The world of Jewish renewal and Reconstructionism have intertwined a good bit, but so have the worlds of uh, at least... Uh, uh, renewal and reform and conservative Judaism intertwined a great deal. We should talk about um, uh, the renewal movement as well, but we're running real low on time right now, so we can we can tackle that next week, Rabbi. But uh, in our closing uh, moments, would you tell us uh, how people can reach the Shalom Center and uh, uh, do you have anything, uh, any particular sure, projects? Sure, there's a website www.shalomctr.org that's s-h-a-l-o-m-c-t-r all one word dot o-r-g and on it is a very rich outpouring of the work of the Shalom Center and people we've worked closely with www.shalomctr.org well, Rabbi, thank you so much for your time with us today. We'll we'll finish this conversation next week. Thanks, and shalom. This is Common Threads. You're listening to WGVU Radio. I'm Fred Stella, president of the Interfaith Dialogue Association. Please join us again next week right here on WGVU. Common Threads is a production of WGVU in cooperation with the Interfaith Dialogue Association. The views and opinions expressed are not necessarily those of the station, its underwriters, or Grand Valley State University. In many cases, the participants on this program represent themselves and may not be designated spokespeople for the faiths they represent. Send questions and comments by email through our website www.interfaithdialogueassociation.org Thank you for listening and join us again next week for another edition of Common Threads. This is Common Threads, an interfaith dialogue. Fred Stella, President of the Interfaith Dialogue Association. Welcome to another edition of Common Threads. Last week we began our conversation with Rabbi Arthur Weskow. Uh, he is the head of the Shalom Center in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. 
And I'd like to mention a little bit about this uh, gentleman. He has quite a resume. He was born in Baltimore in 1933. He took a bachelor's degree from the Johns Hopkins University in 1954 and a doctorate in U.S. history from the University of Wisconsin in 1963. He worked as a legislative assistant in the House of Representatives from 61 to 63. Uh, He worked as a senior fellow for the Peace Research Institute. And he was a fellow of the Colloquium on Conflict Resolution and Disarmament, held by the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. Rabbi was among the founders of the Institute for Policy Studies, a pioneering center for independent analysis of governmental policy and social change. Throughout the 1960s, Arthur Wesco was active in writing, speaking, electoral politics, nonviolent action against the Vietnam War. In 1964, he worked closely with the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party at the Democratic National Convention in Atlantic City. In 1965, he spoke at the first anti-war teach-in at the University of Michigan. He became a writer and teacher of Jewish history and theology. He's worked since 1969 for peace between the Israeli and Palestinian peoples and was among those invited by the White House to take part in the signing of the Declaration of Principles by Prime Minister Rabin and Chairman Arafat in 1993. Through 2001, he worked closely with Rabbis for Human Rights in Israel to create the successful Olive Trees for Peace campaign. And in 1995, Arthur Weskow was ordained a rabbi by an assembly made up of one rabbi whose rabbinic lineage was Hasidic, one conservative rabbi, one reform rabbi, and a feminist theologian. Once again, it's a pleasure to welcome to Common Threads, Rabbi Arthur Weskow. Thank you for joining us again, Thank you, rabbi. and again, shalom. Shalom. As we were ending our program last week, Rabbi, we were talking about the reconstructive movement in Judaism, and you kept on mentioning Jewish renewal, and I know there's still a lot of people who are not familiar with the Jewish renewal movement, so let's talk about that. There are several strands of Jewish thought from the past that came together in the 60s and 70s um, to weave a new fabric. Uh, Some of it was from two scholars and teachers of Hasidism uh, who weren't directly on the scene. Uh, they, one was Rabbi and Professor Abraham Joshua Heschel, uh, who was himself from a Hasidic family, and as an American, I mean, he fled Europe and uh, as in the late 30s, and as an American, uh, walked, literally walked alongside Dr. Martin Luther King, in civil rights and anti-war uh, marches and demonstrations, came back from one of them saying he felt as if his legs had been praying. Just think about that for a minute, what it means to have your legs pray in a march for peace or civil rights. Um, and another was Martin Buber, who learned deeply from Hasidic tradition. And then there were two people who actually were sent out by one of the Hasidic communities, the Lubavitch community, to teach Hasidism in the Jewish world. One of them was Rabbi Shlomo Karlobach, uh, an extraordinary songwriter and singer. And the other one was Rabbi Zalman Shachter Shalomi. And especially Reb Zalman, as people uh, learn to call him, especially Reb Zalman was able to integrate 
a great deal of what he learned in the world, enough that, as he puts it, he graduated from Hasidism and from Lubavitch, and became what many people might call a neo-Hasid, or a renewer of Hasidism in a world that was not the narrow uh, Eastern European world, uh, but a much more open uh, and inviting America. And he learned from feminism, he learned from Christian and uh, Muslim mysticism, uh, he learned from a deep variety of teachings and wisdoms, and integrated them into uh, the Hasidism he knew to shape the beginnings of a new form of Judaism. He talked about a new paradigm. He talked about responding to the upheaval in the world with as new a paradigm of Judaism now as the rabbis 2,000 years ago responding to the upheavals in the world then in the Roman Empire responded with a new form of Judaism then, what we call rabbinic Judaism, which was quite different from the biblical pattern that went before. And from him and with from others who learned from him or with him uh, has emerged an extraordinary network of people. Uh, the Shalom Center uh, was only one of the expressions of this effort at Jewish renewal, uh, which was, in fact, parallel to Reb Zalman's. Uh, ours began with uh, working in the world of social change. His began with working in the world of prayer. Uh, and we recognized in each other the same deep impulse to connect with God as God uh, is expressed through the transformations of the world. And as we recognize that with each other, we began working more closely together. Feminists who were also exploring what a Judaism that was open to the wisdom of half the Jewish people that had been really kept out of the dialogue about what Judaism should become for the last 3,000 years. What would it mean for women to enter that dialogue fully, bringing their own spiritual experience into it? So that amalgam, and then people who had been deeply uh, involved in healing the earth and uh, helped bring what we have been calling Echo Judaism into this mix of Jewish renewal. Uh, so th these different strands, and more recently, the strand of meditation, uh, as people, many Jews who had been drawn to Buddhist meditative practice, or to uh, uh, perhaps Sufi meditative and celebratory practice, uh, discovered that indeed in Jewish tradition, those elements are there, only they had been sort of squished in the modern era, and have been reopened now. So those those different strands, those different uh, threads, are being woven together into a into a new pattern. And that's what Jewish renewal is about. It's about never ignoring the past, but also never getting stuck in the past, drawing on it and making it new, and drawing on new elements of life, like some as I as I've sort of hinted. Uh, full equality, not just the arithmetic equality, but the full spiritual equality of women and men, which didn't come out of the old tradition, but has come from modernity, weaving that, that thread also into what makes a new Judaism. There's a, a 
tremendous amount of interest as of late in uh, Kabbalah and uh, uh, Kabbalah as being practiced by celebrities, non-Jews. Do you have any comments on that? Well, what I found is that Kabbalah or Kabbalah offers a very helpful um, framework for understanding the world. It talks about four worlds of reality, uh, the world of spirit, the world of intellect, the world of emotion and relationship, and the world of actuality. Uh, and being able to think just on that map uh, clarifies some of the problems that we often face in disentangling uh, how to act in the world, how to think, how to feel, how to act, and how to be. Just thinking of them in those four categories helps. Uh, it also talks about the aspects or emanations of God, uh, typically ten svirot, or emanations, uh, which uh, uh, sort of are not only about the nature of God as the great universal and transcendent being, but also God within each of us. God in the human being and in the human race and in the life uh, path and the life weave of planet Earth. Uh, the, those, those ten aspects of emanations of God, again, help us think and help us feel and help us act and help us be because they give us a map through which uh, to act. So those aspects of Kabbalah uh, are, I think, extremely useful. Uh, they help us enrich our prayer. They help us enrich and deepen uh, our way of acting in the world so as to work for peace and for justice and for healing of the wounded earth itself. Uh, and I find it useful to draw on them that, that way. But my question specifically was, what do you feel about the, the non-Jewish community uh, embracing uh, Kabbalah, and specifically, the, there's a certain fattiness that we see when, when you know, the National Enquirer starts talking about it. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, well, anything can be turned into a fad, and any fad can be turned into something profound. So the question for me is, uh, is to go beyond the fad. Uh, I'm, I'm not. I'm not of, among those who think that Kabbalah has to be uh, uh, restricted only to Jews. In fact, it never was. In the Middle Ages, long ago, Christians and Muslims drew in the Kabbalah, too. Um, and if there's wisdom in it, I think the wisdom uh, is useful to everybody. But the only way to make that use, wisdom useful to everybody is to uh, take the wisdom seriously, not to take it as a fad. So... Uh, so I start out open-hearted and open-minded, but not just, oh, anybody who mentions the Kabbalah, well, that's really wonderful. No, the question is depth. The question is, if people begin by being attracted by some aspect of it, are they prepared to go deeper? And that's true about anything. I mean, it's true about Christianity and Judaism in general and about Islam. Uh, doing it on the surface is is not likely to uh, make for the deepening of one's own soul or the healing of the world around us. We've mentioned, uh, I think last week, uh, 
tikkun olam, to repair the world. And I know that that is a phrase that uh, is on the lips of many, many deep Jewish thinkers and social activists. It's something that I don't think a lot of us grew up with uh, in or out of the Jewish community. Uh, Why is that such a mantra these days? Well, it's interesting. The the phrase itself was very much enriched by one of the great Kabbalists five centuries ago, uh, Isaac Loria, who taught that in the shaping of the world, the world had actually cracked and broken several times. You might think of it like um, a computer that you try to put so much into that it crashes again and again. Yet, what you want to have happen is not to throw out all the extra stuff you put in, but to be able to re to use the computer itself to rework itself so the computer can rise to a higher level and be able to deal with the sophisticated stuff you put in it. Well, the notion of Tikkun Olam was that the world we live in is one in which the uh, the shape, the vessels of the world that were intended or hoped for by God um, had so much God energy poured into them, like the computer that's sort of over-programmed, that the world, the shape of the world crashed, and we, who are in the world, have the task of healing it, of repairing the computer, of putting the pieces back together again. We're sort of living in a world in which there's a kind of a jumble of jigsaw puzzle, and we are among the pieces of the jumble. Our job is to be those part of the pieces who pick up the pieces and fit them painstakingly back together again, making the connections and healing the world. That's what Tikkun Olam is. So that means really examining deeply uh, what it means to make peace, what it means to make justice. Uh, It means learning deeply from the way in which Judaism and Christianity and Islam look on top-down, unaccountable, irresponsible power. I mean, that's what Pharaoh was. And Jewish tradition is shaped around the experience of suffering from top-down, unaccountable power and learning to create communities. For instance, one the first thing in the biblical account that the Israelites did after they got out of slavery in Egypt was to was to create or respond to God's creation of the Sabbath, of a time to rest. That's what slaves don't get to do. They never get a chance to rest. They never get a chance to reflect on their lives. They never get a chance to grow in new directions because they don't have a chance to reflect on their lives. Well, that's a profound spiritual and political truth. And Tikkun Olam sort of looks at the world as if Politics is not just playing with power. Politics is seeking to heal the world through the mm, careful and caring uh, application of power, not to be dominant and overwhelming and dominating from the top down, but to be shared by all of us. Christianity did the same thing with Caesar, and in fact, rabbinic Judaism, which went through the same experience of the of the Roman Empire did the same thing with Caesar as well. And in Islam, the power elite of Mecca, which drove Muhammad out of town until 
indeed God erupted, as God did in the Pharaoh story, and as God did in the stories of Caesar, the both Jewish and Christian versions of that story. God erupted, and Muhammad found from deep revelation uh, a vision and a pattern for changing and healing the world. <clears throat> so that's a, that's a deep understanding of what healing the world is about. And it draws on our understanding of the past. It says to us, living in the present, are we living in a society which is more and more controlled by top-down, unaccountable power? And what can we do about it? How do we build new forms of community? What for us is the equivalent of reopening, renewing the sense of Shabbat, of the Sabbath, of restfulness? Uh, we live our lives driven. We, and we let our lives become driven. Of, of course, there are a lot of economic pressures, you know, from on the poor and on the rich. Whether you're a poor single mother, desperately poor, who has to take three jobs to pay the rent and feed her kids, or you're uh, an attorney making $200,000 a year whose partners say, now listen, if you don't work an 80, 90, 100-hour week, then you're clearly not serious. The pressure to overwork is enormous in this society. Our spiritual traditions teach us that this is damaging to human beings, to the community, and to God. So what does it mean to learn to draw on that? What does it mean to remember that one of the characteristics of Pharaoh and Caesar was huge, standing, aggressive armies? What does it mean for us to look at the world we live in and... What does it mean for us to look at the way in which oil is used in the world today? Uh, one of the great Jewish festivals, right, Hanukkah, is built around the notion of sacred oil. But what made that oil sacred was that oil which it had been thought could only last for one day to light the sacred menorah, the sacred uh, candlestick at the, at the temple, lasted for eight days. Well, we need to think of that as God's teaching about conserving energy, right? Energy that people thought would only be useful for one day turned out to be useful for eight until new oil could be created. Well, conserving, literally the word means working with. That story about the sacred oil is a story about working with the earth instead of just trying to dominate it and exploit it. What would it mean for us to try to understand conserving energy, working with the energy of the planet, instead of just pouring it out in the burst of what we're doing with oil, with gasoline, uh, uh, that drives us to war, and it's driving us to shattering the whole climatic uh, pattern of the planet to what people call global warming, I, by the way, call it always global scorching, because global warming sounds so pleasant. Warm, you know, we talk about being emotionally warm. Well, it's much more like global scorching that what is already happening with the melting of the uh, Arctic ice and the shattering of communities, both of animals and human beings that depend on that, and the danger to our coastlines, and what global scorching already did to New Orleans, because the fury of Hurricane Katrina almost certainly came from the heating of the Gulf of Mexico, much hotter than it had ever been before. And we know that when the 
the ocean currents there get very hot. They spawn intense, huge, and ferocious hurricanes instead of mild ones. So we need to pay attention to all those questions and to reshape what it would mean to use oil in a sacred way instead of a totally addictive way, which is what we have done. If you're just joining us, uh, you're listening to Common Threads here on WGVU. I'm Fred Stella, and my guest today is Rabbi Arthur Waskow. And uh, we're talking about new Jewish movements, Reconstructionism, renewal, neo-Hasidism. Hasid, <laughs> help me, That's Rabbi. Okay. Hasidism, Hasid. <laughs> any of those is fine. <laughs> and, uh, you know, just recently... I saw the movie One Bright Shining Moment. Have you seen that? No, I haven't. Are you familiar with it? It's about the um, it's about the rise and fall of uh, Senator George McGovern. Uh huh. And uh, if, if you haven't seen, it'll be around. I'm okay. sure in a city like Philadelphia, it's, it's uh-huh. a powerful film, and it revisits 1968. Uh, and the the war in Vietnam and the anti-war movement uh, back here. Briefly, we only have a few minutes left. Briefly, uh, give us some of your recollections of that time and that event. Uh, well, I remember that even a few years later, in 1971, there were a group of us who, remembering and observing the Jewish day of memory of the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem, twice by the Babylonians and by the Romans, felt that what the United States was doing to Vietnam, for instance, poisoning the earth there so that it would destroy the forest, deliberate defoliation, was like an echo of what the Roman Empire had done to the ancient land of Israel, pouring salt onto it so as to ruin the farms. And we went to the capital on the day that remembers that. It's a midsummer day. It's called Tisha B'Av that remembers the destruction of the temple. We went there fasting for 24 hours, which is the tradition, fasting and sorrow and grief over the destruction of the temple. We went there to stay on the Capitol steps, and in fact, Senator McGovern stopped by. This is 1971, the year before uh, he, uh, he ran for president. Um, he stopped by. He listened to what we were talking about. He really responded to us, seemed moved by us. Uh, he was a serious Methodist, and perhaps he could, got the deep religious underpinnings of what we were saying. Um, so it, it, those years that I remember, the years of the late 60s and into the 70s, were years where this deep religious understanding of what it meant to make peace, of what it meant to make community, of what it meant to care about each other, both the people we could see face-to-face and the people we couldn't see around the planet, and then increasingly also the other beings, the life forms that were not human beings around the planet. I remember those years as very deeply formative, not only for me, but for tens and maybe hundreds of thousands of other people. I think we are now going through just such another period. I think Katrina turned out to be like a lightning flash. Uh, For almost a generation, we had forgotten that there were, we, the middle class in America, had forgotten that there were terribly poor people isolated in their poverty, forgotten, ignored by the rest of American society. We knew that 30 years ago, but middle-class America forgot it. And ruling-class America, folks who 
were in charge of the society, super rich folks, had not only forgotten it, they had, you know, deliberately pushed it out of knowledge. Katrina showed us, like a lightning flash, what was true about the world. We had been walking around in the dark, sort of the way you sometimes walk around in the dark, you may end up breaking a leg uh, because you don't see what's around you. You may end up breaking your heart because you don't see what's around you. But Katrina opened up the possibility of seeing the truth. And I don't know if America as a whole will keep that that moment of vision, that moment of light, open long enough to do something about it. But my sense is that there are a lot of people who learned from that moment, who were beginning, partly because of the Iraq War, partly because of Katrina, partly because of other things, the collapse of health care in the society, and so on. They were beginning to say something has gone wrong, just as people from uh, really from 65 to 71 or 2 said something has gone wrong. Rabbi, we only have a minute left. If you would uh, tell us, uh, uh, give us some contact information for the Shalom Center, and if, is there anything happening in 2006 that you think we should know about? Yes, in fact, uh, both Jewishly and beyond Judaism, uh, people coming together in Washington, April 2nd, 3rd, and 4th. April 4th is the anniversary of the death of Dr. King and of his greatest speech the year before he was killed at Riverside Church in New York. And it comes right before Passover and right before Palm Sunday. We are bringing together, through clergy and laity concerned about Iraq, we are bringing together the religiously committed of all traditions to address issues of the war, issues of poverty, and so on. And you can find this information on our website, which is www.shalomctr.org. That's S-H-A-L-O-M-C-T-R dot O-R-G. Okay, well, Rabbi, we're out of time, but I want to thank you so very much for uh, both uh, today and last week. You're, you're joining us. Thank you. I enjoyed speaking with you, and shalom to you and to all the listeners. This is Common Threads here on WGVU. I'm Fred Stella. Thank you so much for joining us, and be here next week at the same time. Common Threads is a production of WGVU in cooperation with the Interfaith Dialogue Association. The views and opinions expressed are not necessarily those of the station, its underwriters, or Grand Valley State University. In many cases, the participants on this program represent themselves and may not be designated spokespeople for the faiths they represent. Send questions and comments by email through our website, www.interfaithdialogueassociation.org. Thank you for listening and join us again next week for another edition of Common Threads.